listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity today. It's been a while since I've done a standalone podcast. I was on vacation a few weeks ago. Uh, My youth pastor preached for me Sunday, and so I have been out of the pulpit and haven't really had a lot of time to devote to doing a podcast. And so um, I do appreciate those who are uh, my faithful listeners. Um, I have been engaging on some social media platforms, some Facebook groups that I'm a part of, um, engaging in those types of areas as well. Uh, Just to kind of let you know where we're going for the fall, uh, some podcasts that will be coming up. I'm going to be beginning a new Wednesday night teaching in our church um, called Understanding the Ten Commandments. We're going to be starting that in a few weeks, and those um, sessions will be up on the Understanding Christianity podcast. And so we're going to be looking at that from a gospel-centered perspective, understanding the difference between law and gospel, how does Christ transform the Ten Commandments, what is the role of the law in the life of a Christian. So I'm excited about teaching that. Uh, We're going to continue uh, preaching through the book of John. Um, There's going to be a couple of breaks here in between because we have some things related to our church, but uh, we'll get um, into John, finish up John 16 and get into John 17 in the near future. On this podcast, I do want to just address the issue of of how does God convert a sinner or ask it a different way? How how do you actually get saved? Maybe you're listening to this podcast and you are trying to figure out Christianity. Maybe you're not quite sure what this is all about. Maybe you're a pastor. Maybe you're a lay person. Maybe you're a seminary student and, and you just want to help clarify what does the Bible say about salvation? What, what is the process? What goes into God saving a sinner? And so what I want to do on this podcast is to look at some issues surrounding how God does, in fact, convert or save sinners. Um, we could say it this way. True conversion is embracing Jesus Christ as he is freely offered to us in the gospel. It's embracing Christ. It's coming to faith in Christ. It's believing in Christ. It's repenting from sin and turning and trusting in the person of Christ. But before that actually happens, there are some preparatory things that God does to bring about that point in time when you personally exercise repentance and faith. One of the things that God does is He brings the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. I encourage you to go back and listen to a sermon I preached a few weeks ago from John chapter 16 on the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. But let me just um, read to you John 16, 8-11. And when He comes, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. 
don't have a lot of time to go into this, but uh, three issues or three areas that the Holy Spirit convicts. Number one, He convicts us of our sinfulness, the fact that we stand guilty before God in our sin. And, and then we try to rationalize that sin by, by appealing to our resume, saying, I'm not as bad as I think I am. And so, secondly, the Holy Spirit uh, convicts us according to just, uh, righteousness, that we are not righteous. Our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord and then of impending judgment. So the Holy Spirit brings to us an awareness of our own personal sin, of our uh, righteousness being as filthy rags, as being totally inadequate to save ourselves, and the fact that if we remain in our sins, we will face impending judgment on the final day. So the, the Holy Spirit is instrumental in bringing conviction of sin. And so you've probably experienced that before where you have been under conviction. You, you at a point in time were made aware that you were a sinner, that you were guilty, that Christ is indeed who he says he is and that you're under his guilt and under his wrath and that you deserve the full penalty of your sin. That is because the Holy Spirit, Jesus promises, would come and convict the world, lost people. At one point, if, if you if you were a lost person and you got saved, it was because the Holy Spirit brought His convicting work. Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 4-5. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Full conviction. I'm going to talk about this in just a moment, but notice what Paul says there that happens first in time. God has chosen you. God's choosing, God's electing work comes before uh, we actually repent and believe. But notice what Paul says there, that the gospel came to them in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes, and He convicts. He convinces. He's like the prosecuting attorney who shines the light upon your guilt. Now, the second thing that happens in this whole process of coming to faith in Christ is what we would call the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the whole idea that when the Holy Spirit comes and brings conviction and a person hears the gospel, only those whom God has chosen will indeed be called effectually, internally, sovereignly, so that they will come to faith in Christ. We call this being called by God. There's an outward call that goes out generally. In other words, when I stand up and preach on a Sunday morning, there is the outward call of the gospel. I'm preaching a message. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm calling people to repent and believe. Everybody in the room hears it. But only those whom God has chosen, the Holy Spirit will do an internal work an effectual work, a, a sovereign work to call that elect sinner to salvation. Now you say, well, where do, we, where do we see this in the Bible? Let me give you a couple of passages of Scripture that talk about effectual calling. The most famous you could probably go to is Romans chapter 8, 
verses 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the golden chain of redemption. In other words, there is a group of people for which all of these things happen. There's no slippage in the chain. There's no unlinking. There's no breaking. Um, Those who are predestined will be called. Those who are called will be justified. Those who are justified will be glorified. And so again, look at the order of how it happens. The order comes with predestination first or choosing first, then God calling those whom he has chosen. And those that are called will exercise repentance and faith and be justified. And those will be glorified. So there is an effectual call that goes out only to the elect. Only those who have been foreknown, those who've been predestined, those who've been chosen, only they will receive the actual effectual call of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Consider your calling. Notice how Paul again links calling to choosing. God chose you. God called you. You are in Christ because of the calling of God on your life. Now, let's talk about how this linking or this integrating or this combination of election and calling work together. It's all over Paul's writings. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a debate about this passage of Scripture based upon a textual variant, um, and I don't want to go into the whole issue of textual variants. That may be for another podcast. Uh, But some translations may say God chose you as first fruits as opposed to from the beginning. And there's a debate as to what that means. And so, interestingly, um, the Thessalonians were not the first fruits, were not the first people to believe in Macedonia. Um, And so, argument that they were the first fruits of the Gentiles to believe is somewhat of a weak argument. Um, The New International Greek Commentary in the New Testament makes this comment on this passage of Scripture after giving a detailed description about why we should take it as from the beginning, based upon grammar and syntax. Um, His conclusion is this. 
Quote, in light of the above, it is perhaps better on the whole to accept the reading on Arche, that's the Greek, from the beginning, with the majority of commentators and see it as a reference to the fact that from the beginning, God's purpose was to save the elect. Going back to from the beginning, Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 1 that God chose us before the foundation of the world. And so this is what many scholars would believe is a reference to God chose you from the beginning, meaning before time, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, is when God chose us to be saved. And notice there are two main verbs, past tense verbs. He has chosen you, verse 13, he has called you, verse 14. Those are the two verbs. He's chosen you, he's called you. What comes first? The choosing comes first. What comes second? The calling. So the order of salvation is very clear. God chooses, God elects people before time for his good purpose. Now the word that Paul uses here in this, in this Thessalonians passage is a very interesting word. We translate it choose um, it's not the word for predestined. It's not really the word for, for choose that he uses in Ephesians chapter 1. It's a somewhat unique word. It really means to, to take to himself. It's actually somewhat of a stronger word. It means more than merely just God chose, but it was almost this God chose, God brought us, God made the decision to choose us, and it brought him great pleasure. It brought him great delight. It, it focuses on God's eternal love that he set upon the elect before the foundation of the world, and, in, and he chose us for himself. But notice what it says. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. God chose us to be saved. Now, some will argue that, you know, the Bible talks about election, the, doc, the Bible talks about predestination, but it's never really in light of salvation. It's always about our future. We're, uh, we're, we're elected or predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're elected to be holy and blameless. We're elected to be adopted. Those are all future realities that we'll experience one day when we get to heaven. Um, I've, I've gone on um, some blog posts or some Facebook um, interactions where I've actually had people in those, th- those posts say, there's not one passage of scripture that ever says God has chosen us for salvation or for salvific issues. But yet, right here, very clearly, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Okay, but notice what else it says. Through sanctification by the Spirit. Okay, sanctification by the Spirit. We need to be careful. The word sanctification can mean different things depending on context. This is talking about the initial salvation of these Thessalonian believers. And so when they um, were chosen for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit, what Paul is talking about here is being set apart. It's the whole idea that the, the Holy Spirit comes at a point in time and sets the believer apart, sets the person apart, regenerates them, cleanses them, washes them. And then what happens? They have faith in the truth. Notice the order. The order is God chose you. Then you were sanctified by the Spirit. You were regenerated by the Spirit. You were um, cleansed. You were set apart by the Spirit. And then you had faith in the truth. 
Okay, how did this come about? It came as you were called through the gospel. So Paul really combines a great passage here on what happens in salvation. It begins in eternity past when God chose you. God called, or God chose you for himself. Then at a point in time, you were called through the gospel. The gospel came to you. That The gospel message came to you. The Holy Spirit brought conviction. The word was preached to you. And that call was effectual. It resulted in the Holy Spirit sanctifying you, cleansing you, setting you apart. And then you had faith in the truth. And so the Holy Spirit set you apart through the gospel call so that you could believe. Now now this brings up a point. Why... Do we need to have the effectual call? Why does the Holy Spirit have to sanctify us in order for us to be able to believe? Why do we have to be regenerated or cleansed or sanctified by the Holy Spirit, effectually called by the Holy Spirit, in order to actually believe? Why can't we just inherently believe? Why can't we just, why don't we have the libertarian free will to wake up one day and say, hey, I'm choosing to believe in Jesus. Why, why, why do we not have that quote-unquote autonomous free will? Why is there the need for the sovereign regeneration of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's because the Bible teaches total inability. Now, let me just explain what total inability is, because this may be a new term to you, maybe may something that you're not familiar with. Most evangelical Christians will agree with what is traditionally been called total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that we're as evil as we could be. It just means that every faculty of our being, our mind, our will, our body, our emotions, everything that we are is corrupted because of Adam's sin that we have inherited. And we're all born sinful, we're born guilty, we're born stained with the corruption of sin. Almost all evangelicals, orthodox evangelicals, will agree with total depravity. Yet, there are those that will not adhere to total inability. Now, what is total inability? Total inability takes it a step further. The Bible teaches that that we're not just born sinful, we're not just born with the stain of corruption, but we're actually born dead in our trespasses, we're enslaved to sin, and that condition renders us unable to come to faith in Christ on our own. Because we're enslaved, because we're blinded, because we're dead, we lack the moral and the spiritual capacity, the moral and spiritual ability to repent and believe without a prior work of sovereign grace. God must come in the effectual call. The Holy Spirit must come in sovereign regeneration and liberate us from that inability, liberate us from that deadness to grant us a renewed ability to actually believe in Christ. Now, some will argue against total ability. They will say, you know, we've inherited original sin, but we've not inherited the imputed guilt from Adam. We are able to repent and believe. We have libertarian free will. You can make contra-causal free will choices. When the gospel comes to you, you can accept to reject it, or you can um, accept to, to, to receive it. You have the ability to do that. 
um, one famous uh, modern-day statement uh, by a group of traditionalist Southern Baptists who have coined their own uh, doctrinal statement uh, to kind of propagate their viewpoint in Article 2 under the sinfulness of man. Uh, listen to what they say, because the traditional Southern Baptists deny total inability. This is the, the linchpin of their argument against those who hold to a Reformed theology. Um, and so this is really where they like to camp out, because this is really um, the, the, the issue that delineates the two, you know, between, between traditional Southern Baptists and other groups. This is what they say in their Article 2, under the sinfulness of man, under their denial, quote, We deny that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will or rendered any person guilty before he has personally sinned. While no sinner is remotely capable of achieving salvation through his own effort, we deny that any sinner is saved apart from a free response to the Holy Spirit's drawing through the gospel. Okay? So they would say, yes, a sinner can't save themselves, we can't, we're, we're, we're sinful, we can't um, work for our salvation, it's got to be grace, it's got to be the drawing of the Holy Spirit, but what's still intact is the free will. Uh, you are not incapable morally of responding because of Adam's sin. And one of the issues that those against total inability will bring up, the argument they'll bring up is, is that why, why would God command us as sinners to do something that He knows we cannot do? Okay? So the, the, the objection goes like this. We see through all throughout the Bible that God commanding people to repent and believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Repent and believe. All these commands from God. Why is God commanding people to do something if they're not able to do it? If they don't have the moral or spiritual ability to do so, then why is God wasting his time to command something? And so what they're assuming is the responsibility to repent and believe must assume the spiritual ability to repent and believe. So, the responsibility to believe assumes the ability to believe. The command to repent and believe assumes that we have the capacity to obey that command. Now, what I want to show you is that even Scripture itself makes a delineation between these two truths. It, it teaches both truths side by side. Okay, so truth number one. We have to agree upon this. God commands all people everywhere to repent and believe. God commands it. Repentance and faith in Christ are not suggestions. They are commands from the king. They are summons. You are not... You have no option whether you're going to repent or believe. To, to, to not do so is to defy a direct command from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So these are commands. Uh, Mark 1.15, Jesus came saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Those are two present active imperative verbs, which means you must, you're commanded to repent and believe. It's not an option. It's a command from the Lord Jesus himself. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, a command. Repent. You are summoned. You are charged. You are commanded to repent. You must repent. In order to be saved, you must repent. 
Acts 17.30. Paul at Mars Hill says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Very clear in that passage of Scripture. God commands it. It's a command. It's, it's God's lawful command. Acts 26.20. Uh, Paul's giving testimony, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. They should repent and turn to God. Okay, so repentance, belief, trust, coming to Christ, we have to establish that is commanded. Okay, now, what people will say then is, okay, if that is commanded, then the assumption is, okay, we can do it. If God is giving those commands, repent, believe, why would he be giving commands if we can't obey the commands? It's the, the assumption is, we have the ability to repent and believe because God commanded it. But let me give you truth number two that is taught just as clearly in the scriptures. People cannot repent and believe without a prior act of God's grace. They lack the moral and spiritual ability, capacity to, in fact, do what God commands. Now, let's go to John chapter 6, because this is some of the clearest teaching in the Bible from the lips of Jesus on the spiritual and moral inability of man and the need for God to do the work of drawing or regenerating or sovereignly bringing a sinner to come to Christ. John, let me set it up for you with John 6, 36. Jesus, John 6 is the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus performs this sign. It's a sign miracle. John is very fond of using the term sign. Um, in the Gospel of John, there are seven signs. A sign is different than just a bare miracle. A sign is done to point to the reality of who Christ is. And Christ gives the bread of life discourse after he does the feeding of the 5,000. And the bread of life discourse is basically saying he is the bread of life come down from heaven. All people must believe in him, feed on him, find satisfaction in him. He is the true bread from heaven. You will never hunger or thirst. You must come and have faith in Christ. And so Jesus is preaching this at the synagogue in Capernaum, after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd has come across uh, the Sea of Galilee to come and hear Jesus. They're there at attention. They've seen the miracle. They've seen him in the flesh. Their bellies have been filled. They, are, um, they actually want to make him king. And notice what Jesus says to them in John six thirty six: I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. They're not believing. They're seeing, but not believing. So here Jesus has this captive group of Jewish people in the synagogue in Capernaum who have seen a wonderful, powerful, amazing miracle. I mean, taking um, fish and loaves of bread to feed over 5,000 people. Not just, that's just probably just the men, not including the women and the children. So an amazing miracle. A miracle that appeals to their um, fleshly nature because it, it fills their appetites, their physical hunger. And yet Jesus looks them straight in the eye and says, you've seen me, you've heard my voice, you've heard my teaching, you've seen the miracle, you've seen the signs, but yet you do not believe. Okay, that's very key. So let's ask the question, why are they not believing? Why are those who have seen the sign of the feeding of the 5,000, heard the words of Christ, seen Christ in the flesh, why are they not believing? The reason they are not believing 
is because they are not among the elect. They can't believe unless God does something. And listen to what Jesus says, the very next verse, verse 37 through 44. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Okay, Jesus says here, all that the Father gives me. There's an all, there's a group that the Father gives to Jesus. Who is this group? The elect. Those that were chosen, those that were given to him before time. What's going to happen? They will come. And whoever comes will never be cast out. So, there is a sovereign power here in the fact that the elect will come to Jesus, and the elect only. Let's continue reading Jesus' words. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, so Jesus is saying, listen, I've come down to do the will of the Father. I've come down to um, do something on behalf of those that he's given to me. And I'm going to keep those that are given to me. They're going to come to me. How do you come to Jesus? You have to believe. You have to look to the Son. You have to believe in Him. And when you do that, you will be saved. Now remember, these Jews are, are already not believing. They're already in a state of unbelief. Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumble about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Well, Jesus answers them. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now notice again, Jesus' order of things. The order is always the same. If you read Jesus, if you read Paul, if you read Peter, if you read John, it's always the same. God chose, God predestined, God elected, God gave a people to the Son in eternity past. And then at a point in time, they come in faith to Jesus. Why do they come in faith to Jesus? Because they were sovereignly drawn. They were sovereignly regenerated. They were effectually called. Notice what Jesus says. No one can come to me. Now when Jesus says no one can come to me, that is inability. Moral and spiritual inability. Jesus is not saying you, you, no one has permission to come to me. He's not saying you're, you, you know, you're not permitted to come to me. He's, the Greek word there is dunamai, which means power. You can almost translate it, no one has the inherent power or ability or capacity to come to me. And what does coming to Jesus mean? Faith. Believing in Him. Trusting in Him. Receiving in Him. Embracing Him. Unless the Father does something. What must the Father do? The Father must draw. And those whom the Father draws will come. And all of them will be raised up on the last day. So Jesus teaches moral and spiritual inability here. That you're commanded to come. I'm the bread of heaven that's come down. And I'm here. And you must come to me. You must believe in me. 
You must repent and believe. I'm uh, Jesus there in the flesh commanding them, telling them, you're not believing, but you should be believing. You must believe. And then he, in the same sentence, he says, well, listen, you, you can't do what I'm commanding you to do. As a matter of fact, you can't come. You can't come on your own. Something has to happen to you. The Father has to draw you because you lack the moral and spiritual ability to have faith in me. And if you go on further down into the passage of Scripture, after Jesus gives some more teaching, in verse 665, he reiterates this. He says it twice. So if he says something twice, he's really driving home the point. He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, notice the parallelism between verses 44 and verses 65 in John chapter 6. If you've got a Bible or a Bible pro, or, or, or your Bible open, just look at the, the symmetry between those two verses side by side. They, they say exactly the same thing except for something a little bit different. Both verses say, no one can come to me unless. No one can. So both of those verses, exact same grammar, exact same structure. No one has the inherent ability to come to Jesus in faith. Both of them have an unless. In verse 44, the unless, the condition, the, the reason that a person will come to the Father, how, how will come to Jesus, how will God overcome that moral and spiritual inability? By drawing them. That's verse 44. Verse 65, how will God overcome that moral and spiritual inability? What's after the unless in verse 65? Unless the Father grants them the ability to come. God must enable. God must grace. God must grant. So do you see the sovereign initiative here? Do you see the moral, spiritual inability? Both of these truths are taught in the Bible. We are commanded to come. We are commanded to believe. We're commanded to repent. Those are commands from King Jesus that must be obeyed. But yet, from the very mouth of Christ himself, he says that we can't fulfill those conditions. We can't come. We lack the ability unless God does something to us. God must draw us. God must grace us. God must grant us. God must enable us to come. Thus, the effectual call. Thus the sovereign regeneration, thus overcoming that moral and spiritual ability to cause, effectually, sovereignly, a sinner to in fact come. Let me give you some quotes from three commentaries. Um, now, obviously, you can pick whichever commentary suits your own theological persuasion. Um, I'm going to some of the three top commentaries, I think, on the Gospel of John that are written by modern-day scholars um, you've got Leon Morris, the New International, you've got D.A. Carson, the Pillar, and you've got F.F. Bruce, who was probably the greatest New Testament scholar of last century, the 20th century. So I'm picking some top scholars here. And obviously these all lean Calvinistically, but let me just give you their quotes, because I think their quotes help uh, how, how they comment on verse uh, 665 and verse 644. Leon Morris says this, it is impossible for anyone to come to Christ without the Father's giving him the grace to do so. Left to himself, the sinner prefers his sin. Conversion is always a work of grace. You see the, the wording he uses? It's impossible to come. That's what Jesus is saying. It's impossible for you to come. You lack the moral, spiritual, but you cannot come unless God graces you, God regenerates you, 
God causes you to come. Listen to D.A. Carson. The need for the divine initiative which draws those whom the Father has given to the Son and enables them to believe, genuine coming to faith is never finally a matter of autonomous human decision. There has to be, he says, a divine initiative. There has to be an enabling to believe. It's not of human decision. Listen to how F.F. Bruce, F.F. Bruce puts it probably the strongest. No one can come to Christ in faith but those who are persuaded and enabled to do so by the Spirit. But all these will come, drawn by the irresistible grace of heavenly love, and none who comes is rejected. Sometimes Calvinists are fond of using the term irresistible grace. It's somewhat confusing. I understand what it means, irresistible grace. It doesn't mean that grace is always, that you can never resist grace if God's calling. What it does mean is that when God decides to decisively act in regenerating or calling one of his elect to himself, he sovereignly does that. And that sinner irresistibly does come. That sinner infallibly will come. They're so persuaded, they're so renewed, uh, they're, they're liberated from their bondage to sin. God sovereignly overcomes that deadness. God sovereignly overcomes that moral inability that they will, in fact, irresistibly come to faith in Christ. Okay? Now, there are those on the other side of the aisle who would say that this passage of Scripture does not teach sovereign regeneration. It does not teach effectual calling. Uh, it just basically means when God says, um, you know, unless it is granted to him by the Father, they look at that Greek word didomai, uh, Greek word didomai, to give, to grant, uh, simply means that God enables a person to come. Uh, God gives them permission. Uh, it doesn't mean causing them. It doesn't mean effectual calling. Uh, it doesn't mean sovereign regeneration. Um, it just means that God gave them permission. God gave them the ability God enabled them to come, um, whatever. But you have to think about what the word didomai actually means. So, in Bible study, you can go and say, okay, let me look up Strong's, let me look up Thayer's, let me look up Lunida, let me look up the BDAG, let me look up all these different lexicons, and, and let, me, let me find the entry that fits my theological persuasion. Because sometimes you can do that. You can go to lexicons, and they'll give you multiple entries for what, how that word is used. Um, and so you have to be a little bit careful because you can actually go into a lexicon looking for your bias. And so it's helpful to go to lexicons to look for the meaning of a word. And most often the word really means what it means in, in the English, uh, oftentimes. Uh, but context is really the key here. And so... Even if you came up with some weird thing in, um, or, or a different entry in a lexicon for didomai that meant granted or permission, the context does not allow you to, to give that. The context here is not God enabling, God permitting. It's God causing. It is God overcoming. It is God sovereignly drawing. Because there's that clause at the end of that where he will raise them up on the last day. And so you have to look at the entire context of what Jesus is saying. Okay, here's Jesus' logic, um, his logical flow of thought. There is a group 
of people called the elect, whom the Father has given to Jesus. This was in the covenant of redemption that was before the foundation of the world, where the Father chose a group of people and gave them as a love gift to the Son. Okay. Adam came, he fell, all of us inherited, imputed guilt, were dead in sin. Every single human person lacks the moral ability to come. Jesus clearly teaches that. So we're supposed to come to faith in Christ. We're supposed to believe in Christ. We're commanded, but we can't. We're morally unable to. We're spiritually unable. No one can. And so what does God have to do? God has to overcome that inability by drawing us, by granting us, by gracing us. And then when he does that, they will come and they will be raised up on the last day. Now, here's the big question, and this is the struggle that I had when I was coming to terms with some of these doctrines about 15, 17 years ago. I was reading this passage of Scripture, and I was tracking with what Jesus was saying, and then it suddenly dawned upon me. Now, wait a minute. If God has given a group of people to Jesus, and those people will come to Jesus, and those people are drawn to Jesus, and those people are graced to come to Jesus, and those people will never be cast out, and those people will be raised up, that's a limited group of people. And I looked at that drawing, and I thought to myself, that must mean that God does not draw, God does not enable, God does not grace all people. He only gives that to those whom were given to Jesus. And so I began to wrestle with that and say, now wait a minute, I thought God drew everybody. I thought, you know, God woos, God convicts, God convinces, God draws, and then it's up to the person whether they're going to use their free will to come or not. They're, they're going to uh, accept that wooing, accept that enabling, accept that, that drawing, and they can choose to accept or reject it. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is very clear that from first to last, this group of people that have been given to him by the Father will be drawn, and only they will be drawn. They will come, and only they will become. They will never be cast out, and, and, and only they will never be cast out. And they, and only they, will be raised up on the last day. So it is a limited group of people, only those who believe. So a dead sinner, those who Jesus says are morally, spiritually unable to come, you can't control whether you repent or come to Christ. You, you, you lack the ability. God must grant it. God must sovereignly overcome the deadness through the means of effectual regeneration. Now, listen to Ezekiel, because um, I want to show you two verses in Ezekiel that illustrate this. You say, well, that's Old Testament, so um, it's a little bit different. I understand the differences between the Old Testament and New Testament. Just listen to Ezekiel 18.31. God gives a command to the nation of Israel. God says, cast away from all the transgressions that you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And what's God commanding them to do? God says, hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a command. Make yourselves a new heart. Make yourselves a new spirit. Okay, so God's commanding them to do something. Give yourself a new heart. Give yourself a new spirit. And we would look at that and say, okay, the Israelites must have had the ability to do that. If God's commanding them to make themselves a new heart and make themselves a new spirit, then they should have had the ability to make themselves a new heart and make themselves a new spirit. God's commanding something that he knows they can do. But we know from the rest of Ezekiel that God's commanding something they cannot do. Because we go to 
Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, where God says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see the two right there? God commands them, hey, give yourself a new heart. Give yourself a new spirit. Morally unable to do so because they're spiritually dead. They have hearts of stone. They cannot do that. So God has to do it. And later on in Ezekiel, God says, I'm going to do this. The new covenant promise, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. I'm going to take out your heart of flesh and give you a heart of stone. God's going to do it. And that's why Augustine famously said, command what you will and grant what you command. That was really what Pelagius had a problem with. Because Augustine knew that God was commanding us to do things we were unable to do, but realized that in the command itself, God was granting the grace to be able for us to to do that. Now let me give you another passage of scripture that talks about God's sovereign prerogative in granting this ability to repent and believe. It comes from 2 Timothy 2, 25-26. Paul is writing to Timothy. He's a young pastor. He's giving him instructions on how to pastor, how to lead his congregation in Ephesus. And Paul says, uh, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Notice that word grant again. But, but notice the language here. God may perhaps grant them repentance. Which means that God has the sovereign right over whether he's going to grant or not grant repentance. Repentance is not something that a sinner can just decide, hey, I'm going to do, unless God grants it. God has to give it as a gift. God is sovereign over that. And again, God has to grant it. Repentance is not something that you morally or spiritually have the ability to do. God has to grant that repentance. God has to enable that repentance. God has to grace you. And he's sovereign over whether he's going to give that to you or not. And once God grants you that repentance, it will lead to a knowledge of the truth. You will come to your senses and you will escape the snare of the devil. It's interesting. Uh, You will come to your senses after God grants you repentance. Doesn't that sound very similar to uh, a story we see in Luke chapter 15? Doesn't that sound like the prodigal son? Uh, Luke 15, 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. Then he goes home. Now, you can't press a lot into a parable, uh, but you can see that God is granting a sinner repentance and they are led to the truth and they come to their senses. Some of you, let me give an illustration here about this, this inability, this moral and spiritual inability. Um, some may say, you know what, I have a drunk relative, I've got an alcoholic a friend or relative and they need to go to rehab. We need to have intervention. And so he, as a drunk, can admit his need for rehab. And so he can admit that he needs it. He's not, he's not necessarily um, saving himself, but he's admitting his need for rehab. Um, and so he goes into rehab and he gets sober. But here's the issue. He is enslaved to his drunkenness. That is part of his nature. And so 
he needs to go to rehab. He needs to get sober. And even if he admits his need, even if he admits it and says, hey, I, I need to go into rehab, does that change his nature from being an alcoholic to being sober? Is admitting the need causing the change? Okay, because some, I've heard some um, other people say that, you know, salvation basically means that when you're dead in sin, it doesn't mean that you can't just admit that you need a Savior. And so basically they've, they've uh, minimized or truncated repentance and faith down to admitting that you need a Savior. Well, admitting that you need a Savior is not repentance and faith. Admitting is part of that. It's, it's, it's part of that, but just admitting that you're a drunk and I need to go to rehab doesn't change your nature. It, it doesn't give you the ability to actually overcome that rehab, uh, that, that alcoholism, because it's still part of your nature. Something has to happen in order for your nature to change. Think about a drunk driver. Um, he, he has inability. He can't drive straight. He can't obey laws. I mean, would the authorities excuse his behavior based upon his inability? So the issue here is not physical ability to repent and believe. The issue is moral and spiritual inability. The issue is, can you morally and spiritually change your nature so that you can, in fact, come to faith in Christ? Or does your nature have to be changed first in order to give you the ability, morally and spiritually, to come to faith in Christ? So it's not like physical ability. We're talking about moral and spiritual. For example, let, let's say that, that I'm at church and I have a bunch of five-year-olds with me and we have a 10-foot basketball out in the back and I say, hey, why don't you go up and dunk? Do a 360 dunk for me on the 10-foot rim. Well, that would be kind of mean to the child because they don't have the physical ability to do that. So our sin is not an issue of that we can't physically believe and, and repent if we wanted to. That, that the problem is we don't want to, and we cannot. See, here's the thing that happens in an unregenerate person. And, and hear me, this is where you really need to understand. In a lost, unregenerate person, they lack two things. They lack the desire to come to Christ. In other words, they don't want to. They want to stay in their sin. And they lack the ability to come to Christ, to do what God commands. So two strikes against them. They don't want to, and they cannot. And so it's not just a matter of not really being able to, which is bad enough, it's they don't want to, unless God does the work. That's why Jesus earlier in John chapter 3 said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel what I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, do you see the command there? Jesus says you must be born again. God, or Jesus here, is commanding something impossible. So you say, why would God command something if we're not able to do it? You and I can't cause ourselves to be born again. Jesus gives the command, you must be born again, but you cannot. The wind, the Holy Spirit has to come and has to give you life. He sovereignly blows where he wishes. And when he comes and blows upon one of the elect and, and effectually calls them, then they will be born again. 
So even Jesus there is commanding something that's impossible. He's showing in both of those verses the command and the inability to, to obey the command. Ephesians 2, 4-5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ by grace you're being saved. God has to make us alive. God has to open our hearts. First Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's caused it. He's sovereignly done it. And so, let's get back to how does God convert a sinner? There are those who are elect in eternity past that are called the elect. God has chosen them. In time, they will hear the gospel preached. They will be under conviction by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will internally call them to the Father. The Holy Spirit will draw them to the Father. The Holy Spirit will overcome that moral and spiritual inability and regenerate them, make them alive, give them a brand new heart so that they can indeed freely repent and believe. And so how do you come to faith in Christ? You've got to repent and you've got to believe. What is repentance? Repentance is where you are so grieved by your sin. You're so sorrowful over your sin. You you hate your sin so much that you cast yourself totally at the mercy of Christ and you desire to turn from that sin, to change your mind about that sin, to walk away from that sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It's this godly grief over your sin that leads to repentance. And even then, repentance is a gift. It's something God has to give you. Remember the the Timothy passage? God may perhaps grant it. Acts 5.31 God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God had to give Israel the ability to repent. Not just Israel, but the Gentiles as well. Acts 11.18 When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God grants that repentance. God sovereignly gives that repentance, that turning away, that hating of sin. Now, repentance and faith are distinctly different, but they're intrinsically tied together. I like to see them as two sides of the coin of conversion. One coin, but two different sides. Repentance is the negative. It's the turning away of sin. It's the owning up to the sin. It's the grieving over the sin. It's the hating the sin. It's having your mind changed over the reality of who you are before God. And and, and, and you're so um, loathing of your condition before God that you, you, you in godly sorrow turn from that sin. But as you turn from that sin, the other side of the corner is you're turning toward Christ in faith. You're casting yourself upon Christ to save you. So that's faith, genuine saving faith. It's where the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, where the work of the Spirit is in their hearts to grant them this ability to believe the Word of God, to know that Christ is their Savior. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 
For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Again, faith itself is a gift as well. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake that you should not only believe in Him, but also to suffer. So it's been granted to believe. It's been granted to rep- repent. It's been granted to come. You've been drawn by the Father. You've been called. You've been regenerated. You've been given a heart of stone. You repent and believe. And so faith is a conviction of the truth of God's word in the gospel. Second uh, Timothy 1.12, Paul says, This is which, which is why I suffer as I do. I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. It, it's a conviction. It's a solid belief. You're convinced in the truth of God's word about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, his person and his work. You believe wholeheartedly in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and that God's word is true and that Jesus is truly the eternal Son of God. But it's not just that. Faith, it also involves committing your life, entrusting yourselves, casting yourselves, submitting yourselves totally to Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. The Bible uses many different terms to this. I mean, Jesus, a lot of times in the Gospel of John, talks about believing into Him or coming to Him. John 1, 12-13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So they believed. You received him. You believed him. You, you, you came to him. And, and what was it, why was this? Why did you do this? Again, it wasn't a result of your will. It wasn't a result of something that you did. It's because God did it. The Philippian jailer. Acts 16, 30-31. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in Jesus. Trust yourself to Jesus. Entrust yourself to Christ. Receive Him. Embrace Him. Paul says in Romans 10, 9 and following, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How does faith come? How do you have faith? It comes from hearing the word of Christ. God births this faith. God creates this faith. God gifts this faith in His elect through the preaching of the Word of Christ. Faith is not something that we can produce in our unregenerate states. Remember, we cannot come. We cannot submit. We don't want Jesus. We could care less about Jesus. We don't have the ability to come to Jesus. We don't have faith. And so the primary way that the Holy Spirit effectually calls... And he regenerates and grants repentance and faith is creating faith 
birthing faith in the elect through the preaching of the word of Christ. So when the word is preached and when you hear that, God, the Holy Spirit, gives you the gift of faith to be able to believe. Listen to what Martin Luther said about faith. Faith is a work of God in us, which changes us and brings us to birth anew from God. It kills the old Adam, makes us completely different people in heart, mind, senses, and all our powers, and brings the Holy Spirit with it. What a living, creative, active, powerful thing is faith. Faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. It is so certain that someone would die a thousand times for it. This kind of trust in and knowledge of God's grace makes a person joyful, confident, and happy with regard to God and all creatures. This is what the Holy Spirit does by faith. Listen to what Calvin says about faith. We see this by the conclusion what Paul had in view by the gradation which he formed. It was to show that wherever faith is, God there already given as evidence of his election. So if there's faith, Calvin says, it's because God has already chosen that person to believe. But notice what he says about the preaching. He says, As remarkable as this passage is with regard to the efficacy of preaching, for he testifies that it by faith is produced, he had indeed before declared that of itself it is of no avail, but that when it pleases the Lord to work, it becomes the instrument of his power, And indeed, the voice of man can by no means penetrate into the soul, and mortal man who would be too much exalted were he said to have the power to regenerate us. The light also of faith is something sublimer that we can be conveyed by man, but all these things are no hindrances that God should not work effectually to the voice of man so as to create faith in us through his ministry. (laughs) Calvin says, listen, as great as preaching is, we're merely men. We preach the word, we preach the external call, we preach the gospel, but the Holy Spirit has to do the internal call. The Holy Spirit has to create faith. The Holy Spirit has to go into the recesses of that dead, dark, depraved, morally incapable sinner to bring about regeneration, to effectually call them to birth faith in them. And how does the Holy Spirit actually birth that faith? It's through the call. The outward call going into the inward call. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So let's just summarize the question we asked at the beginning. How does God convert a sinner? Well, God graciously sends the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to the world, the preaching of the gospel. There's a general outward call that goes out indiscriminately to all people. Yet there's also an internal and effectual call that specifically and sovereignly goes to the elect, those whom God has chosen before the creation of the world. They will be called. They will hear the voice of the shepherd. And since they are spiritually and morally unable to come to faith because they are dead in sin, they're enslaved to sin, God must sovereignly change their hearts through that effectual call, through that sovereign regeneration, and God grants them, God graces them, God gives them the gifts of repentance and faith. Once the Spirit calls and regenerates the elect sinner to the preaching of the Word and renews their wills and grants them the gifts of repentance and faith, that renewed 
born-again person now freely comes to Christ. He or she freely repents and believes. They're converted. They choose themselves to do this, repenting and believing. You could go so far as to say that they, they chose to believe in Christ. But that coming, that choosing, that repenting, that believing, that embracing was given by God as a sovereign gift of grace to the elect through the effectual call and regeneration by the Holy Spirit. That effectual calling and regeneration was needed to overcome total inability, spiritual deadness that all people are born with as a result of the fall. That's why Jonah 2.9 says salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, I hope you found this podcast helpful. Maybe you can share it with someone who doesn't quite agree with your viewpoint or maybe someone who's struggling with their assurance of salvation or maybe as an evangelistic way to, to tell a person how they can come to have faith in Christ. And so hopefully um, you know that you're saved and that you have personally placed faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus.